audience old sport, this is Costume Drama Rewind with Laura Skog and Megan Chet. This week, we're looking at our first movie based on a book. The Great Gatsby is considered the definitive novel of the Jazz Age, which is a term that F. Scott Fitzgerald is credited with having coined. It's been adapted for film four times, as well as for TV, radio, theater, opera, ballet, and a most excellent video game. But today, we're looking at Baz Luhrmann's interpretation from 2013, and it stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Tobey Maguire, and Carey Mulgan. First, a quick synopsis. We all know the story if we attended an American high school any time in the past 50 years. As told by the deeply judgy Nick Carraway, boy meets girl and falls passionately in love. Boy is deemed too poor and too socially inferior to be a suitable husband for girl. Boy goes off to fight in World War I and then to make his fortune. Meanwhile, girl marries a guy who is conveniently awful but rich. Boy and girl unite against the backdrop of the Jazz Age, where he seeks to woo her away from her conveniently awful husband via his dazzling material success and unflagging devotion. Girl is intrigued, but waffles about until she accidentally and unwittingly runs over and kills her conveniently awful husband's mistress, whose husband kills boy and then himself, and everyone else lives not at all happily. So, a few first impressions. There has been so much Gatsby in my life. Look, as I just said, everyone who went to an American high school or college in the past 50 years read this book. I read it for what has to be a record six different classes. I read it three times in high school, and then three times in college, once for an American Lit class, once for a class on the history of the 1920s, and once when I wrote a paper on it covering early texts that reflected the eugenics movement for a class called the Holocaust in Literature and Art. I have read this book an absurd number of times. This particular movie I'd seen exactly once before, when it was first released seven years ago, during a New Year's Eve on my couch, and it turns out on second viewing that the slightly dizzy feeling that it evokes wasn't just from the $5 grocery store champagne. I read the book for school in 8th grade, and it also got assigned again in 11th grade, but I think I just did a quick run-through with the cliff notes that time. Low energy. Seemed more efficient. Anyway, the symbolism's pretty obvious. Green light, American dream, blah, blah, blah. At this point, a lot of the themes in the book are cliches, like the idea of the toxic manic pixie dream girl and the protagonist learning that rich people are bad. Anyway, I absolutely hated Moulin Rouge because Get there's, out. there's too much going on in every frame for that entire movie. So when this Great Gatsby film hit theaters in 2013, I skipped out. But I did smirk at all the memes, the wall art decorations, etc. that came out around that time that said stuff like, Act like Jackie, dress like Audrey, party like Gatsby! Because A, he didn't actually partake in any of the parties, and B, I thought they should change it to pool party like Gatsby. With that, let's get right down to the heart of the matter. So one thing that's always been pretty clear is that the basic setup of Gatsby is self-consciously autobiographical. Like Jay Gatsby, F. Scott Fitzgerald fell in love early in life with a girl whose family considered him way beneath her. Even though his family was comfortably upper middle class and he was a student at Princeton, when he began pursuing Ginevra King, her father is said to have told him that, quote, Poor boys shouldn't think of marrying rich girls, a line which isn't in the book, but which does make it into this and several other film versions. Despite this, Fitzgerald remained absolutely fixated on her. He based not only Daisy, but at least half a dozen other characters after her, and it's said that... Mm, it gets worse. It's said that he couldn't think of her without tears coming to his eyes, oh even late in life. Gosh. 
But as should be pretty obvious from the way he writes Daisy, his devotion was also mixed up with a great deal of anger and bitterness. During a brief reunion 20 years later, when Ginevra asked him which of his characters was based on her, he snarled, which bitch do you think you are? So it's pretty clear that Fitzgerald's coping mechanisms were just about as unhealthy as Gatsby's. Incel. For her part, Ginevra married the heir to the Texaco oil fortune in what was apparently not a happy marriage, which ended in divorce. After Fitzgerald's death in 1940, his daughter sent Ginevra a collection of the letters she'd written to him during their romance, which Fitzgerald had previously had typed and bound together, and apparently consulted frequently when writing. On reading them, Ginevra commented, Goodness, what a self-centered little ass I was. Which is sort of how I feel when Facebook shows me my old status updates from college, so solidarity, sister. Anyway, Ginevra went on to lead a much happier life than Fitzgerald. She had a much happier second marriage, got very involved in philanthropy with the American Cancer Society, and died in 1980. One of the keystone things we remember about the 1920s is the alcohol, and the excitement around it in The Great Gatsby is definitely on point. Noted food blogger Tori Avey explains in an article for the PBS website that, quote unquote, by barring alcohol from the masses, the government unwittingly made it more fashionable, more desirable, and something eager consumers had to get their hands on. She also notes that because bathtub gin and other DIY alcohol didn't taste as good, this led to the greater popularity of cocktails because mixers hid the flavor. Finger foods also became popular because people didn't want to drink and party on an empty stomach. And the B-plot about Gatsby running the illegal drugstores and speakeasy also borrows from history. Avi says that doctors could prescribe whiskey for medicinal reasons, so you could bribe a doctor or a pharmacist to get it. On a personal note, my grandfather was a teenager during the 20s, and on a lark, he and some friends acted as bootleggers, so I found this all pretty interesting. I'm not sure which sounds cooler, that job or being described as noted food blogger. (laughs) This version of the story has a framing device that's unique to any version of Gatsby. When the screenwriter set out to translate the story to screen, they realized that Nick is pretty clearly telling a story to someone, but it's not clear to whom. So the whole story ends up being framed around the idea of Nick in a sanitarium telling the story to his therapist. So much of the background of this story is shaped by the First World War. Nick served, and Gatsby, and Tom, and it helped shape them all in different ways. And it was also the first war in history where people really paid attention in any measure to the mental health fallout. The history of mental health treatment is a long and complicated one in which neither of us are experts, but we can look at some broad strokes. What we now understand to be post-traumatic stress disorder... Uh, similar to what Nick might be suffering from, was first identified as early as the Civil War when it was termed Soldier's Heart. The National Museum of Civil War Medicine in Frederick, Maryland, mounted a very good exhibit a few years ago that tells some of these stories, drawing on these fairly sparse clues in letters and diaries. But it was clear even then that some soldiers were suffering from symptoms that went well beyond any physical trauma they had suffered. At the time, it was considered more a character flaw than a serious malady. It takes until World War I that doctors begin to understand that something else is going on. In early 1915, the British medical journal The Lancet publishes an article identifying something called shell shock. It attributes it to the physical effects of a concussive event that shook the brain, but it pretty quickly becomes clear that even soldiers who hadn't been anywhere near an explosion were suffering similar symptoms, and the realization begins to dawn that there might be some non-physical wounds of war. So England really begins pioneering treatment here, and the standard treatment becomes rest and relaxation in a quiet, pleasant environment, perhaps a country estate that's being used as a rehabilitation hospital, which might be familiar to what I'm sure the many Downton Abbey fans in the crowd. All that to say, the framing here that's given to Nick Carraway's story 
what might have been termed a nervous breakdown, but we would probably identify today as a form of PTSD, followed by an interlude of genteel recovery, would not have been unfamiliar to the World War I generation. Moving on to the antagonists of the film. Our introduction to the brutish and perpetually sweaty Tom Buchanan is him being catered to by black servants as he rants about people of color overtaking white civilization, informed by a recent book he's read. This is an allusion to the real-life book, The Rising Tide of Color, The Threat Against White World Supremacy, written in 1920 by Lothard Stoppard. What a name. This book, which argued against non-white migration to predominantly white countries, was influential in perpetuating anti-black racism. For example, President Harding decided to, to back segregationist policies. Stoppard went on to write a book called The Revolution Against Civilization, The Menace of the Underman, or as it was translated into German, Der Kulturumsturm, die Drohung des Untermenschen. That sounds like a familiar term. And this wasn't the only racist literature around during this time. In 1916, a conservationist named Madison Grant wrote a book called The Passing of the Great Race or the Racial Bias of European History, which is full of pseudoscience about Europe being created by racially pure Nordic types who were all responsible for every single important and noteworthy thing and act and work of art. But the race had been quote unquote mongrelized by so-called inferior races. This also sounds familiar, and yes, this is because Hitler was extremely inspired by the book and told the author as much. Both Stoppard and Grant were major supporters of eugenics. So yes, the stuff that Tom is spouting off about is part of a stream of thought that finds expression in 20th century white supremacist and anti-Semitic movements, from campaigns against interracial marriage and for forced sterilization in the U.S. to his ultimate expression in The Final Solution. You know, people tend to think that because Fitzgerald is putting these ideas in the mouth of Tom Buchanan, who is undoubtedly a stupid brute and probably the worst person in the novel. I'm really sweaty. So sweaty. Fitzgerald was expressing opposition to eugenics. In fact, Fitzgerald was heavily influenced in his thinking by the New York philanthropist Mary Harriman Rumsey, who in addition to serving in the Roosevelt administration was also a leader and funder of several eugenics research projects and had really swayed Fitzgerald into this particular line of thinking. In that light, it seems pretty clear that Fitzgerald wasn't so much mocking eugenics as he was mocking Tom, who's trying to articulate what would have been considered elite opinion at the time, but he can't seem to get the details quite right. People tend to forget that eugenics was considered quite respectable and mainstream until it found expression in the Holocaust, and then, thankfully, people said, oh shit, that's where all this leads. So now the big question, how many boater hats are we awarding this movie? I'm doing it. Two butter hats, and that's it. I found this movie exhausting. As I mentioned, Boz Luhrmann's camera work routine is extremely tiring. There's just so much going on for the first half of the movie that when you get to important stuff, especially in the later half and stuff that's supposed to be considered poignant, you're just so worn out that the artistic cinematography just does not have as much of an impact. Also, at 140 minutes, it's entirely too long, especially for such a short book. And finally... Leonardo DiCaprio, stop saying old sport. Stop having a weird accent. He is surely listening to this podcast. Yes, he is. However, all the details that actually went into making the movie, such as costuming and music, even you know, the typography on the screen, I found that really fascinating. I'd rather watch a documentary on them making the movie than the actual movie itself. Fair enough. That's also probably because you're a little bit of a nerd. So 
I'm at about two and a half boater hats. The opening scenes of the movie flew by, even with a really heavy use of direct narration from the book. And then about halfway through, the whole thing just seemed to slam to a halt. At about that point, the surrealism stopped feeling like some fun social commentary on the jazz age, and started to feel like the time I ate an entire funnel cake and then went on the tilt-a-whirl. Like, time had stopped, and yet I still just needed to yarf. I think the movie gets some points for managing to be creative while sticking pretty faithfully to the original text, but mostly it's just one long gimmick that seems to really revel in the excesses of the era rather than critique it the way Fitzgerald did, and I think I've actually talked myself down to a solid two boater hats. So finally, a few sundry other notes. Okay. In one scene, we're briefly introduced to a guy named Meyer Wolfsheim, and Gatsby says that he fixed the World Series. This is assumed to be a reference to Arnold Rothstein, a gangster who was accused of paying the Chicago White Sox to deliberately lose to the Cincinnati Reds in 1919. Uh, He made money by betting against Chicago. Even though he got indicted, he wasn't convicted, and many of the people who were supposed to give testimony refused to do so. He's also one of the early alcohol racketeers, so it's fitting that the character is one of Gatsby's associates. So we would be remiss if we didn't take a minute to talk about the music, which is one of the gimmicks that I think actually works really well. In the 1920s, jazz was this incredibly transgressive, progressive, rebellious thing, but to the modern ear, it sounds quaint and dated and maybe a little bit like elevator music. So Baz Luhrmann's decision to pair the film with a soundtrack that includes hip-hop and alternative and EDM and other contemporary styles is really an attempt to convey that same emotion and spirit that jazz must have evoked in the 1920s. It's worth noting that Lin-Manuel Miranda, our future benevolent dictator, was going for the same thing when he composed Hamilton. He wanted the music to reflect his character's youthful energy and their breaking of old barriers and the revolutionary nature of the revolution. With the fashion, some well-known names worked with Lorman on the costumes, such as Prada for the women's dresses, Tiffany's for the jewelry, and Brooks Brothers for the men's clothing. They were actually able to look through their own archives for inspiration, as each one of these companies was around in the 20s. New York-based Brooks Brothers has actually been around since 1818. And the characters in the book probably would have worn some of these brands. Fitzgerald actually did buy Brooks Brothers. However, they also infused other decades into the costume design. For example, the women wear more figure-enhancing clothing instead of the flat-chested look that was actually popular in the 20s. Daisy's costumes have more of a 1910s vibe with the bodices, which fits since Gatsby sees her as she was back during World War I. Jordan Baker wears clothing such as pants and backless dresses that were in vogue in the 30s, and she's a future-facing woman. And Myrtle's clothing has more of a va-va-voom 1950s look. So finally, we would like to note that under U.S. copyright law, Gatsby will officially enter the public domain in just under five months on January 1st, 2021. So have fun with that, old sports. <laughs> Next time on Costume Drama Rewind, before there was Downton Abbey, there was Gosford Park. Join us as we review Julian Fellow's first big screenwriting project, which also draws on his insanely detailed mastery of the British country house system. Be sure to check out our show notes at CostumeDramaRewind.com, where we're posting references, links, book recommendations, funny videos, and anything else that strikes our fancy. Thanks for listening. Old sport.